I don't know. Uh, did anybody uh, read the topic for today? Yeah, okay. We're, we're going to talk about uh, current events. <laughs> don't, don't you love that day in social studies? You come in and the teacher says, okay, today we're going to talk about current events, and you have to decide whether you've read the paper lately or not. But I don't think we have that problem here. All right. I'm going to start with a short prayer. Uh, the short prayer I'd like to begin with is the prayer of taking refuge. And those of you who are familiar with this prayer can join in. And uh, those of you who are unfamiliar with it can just rest your mind in the sound and make the inner aspiration that you dedicate this session to all sentient beings' freedom from suffering. So we'll start with that. Oh, Sanje Chudan Soji Chonaham La Chang Chu Pardu Dani Kyap Suchi Daji Jin Soji Besunaham Ki Drola Pinchir Sanje Druparsho Sanje Chudang Sochi Chonahamla Chang Chu Pardu Tani Kyap Suchi Daji Jin Soji Besunaham Ki Drola Penshi Sanjay Druparsho Sanjay Chudan Soji Chonamla Chang Chu Pardu Dani Kyap Suchi Daji Jin Soji Besunam Ki Drola Pinchi Sanjay Druparsho O Paulin Sawilam Harim Boche Tagi Chior Peditin Shala Kadun Jembo Kone Jason Te Kusum Mudrup Sal Duso. Okay, thank you. Ah, once again, it's, it's good to be back in the family. <laughs> By the way, um, this is, uh, this is off topic. Steve, remind me, I've got something to give you. I, I just now saw you in the, in the crowd. Also, hello to, hi, Kim. Yeah, Kim, Kim and I, Kim and I like talk every day. It's like, it's like, hi, sis. How's it going? <laughs> You would not believe what we're working on in the background. We're trying to get uh, Lama Lodro Lamo here in November. We're make, gonna make it happen, so thank you. Okay, so um, in the last few weeks, uh, some folks have asked me uh, to talk about uh, current affairs because there's a lot going on in the world. And, uh, and I thought that I would take a little time today uh, to talk about um, the concept of the other the other, uh, because you know uh, there are all kinds of others in in our lives, in our life and world. 
uh, we can think of the other as somebody who doesn't look like us, or we can think of the other as somebody who doesn't talk like us, or we can think of the other as being somebody other than us. In fact, um, Bokhar Rinpoche, in his book, The Profound Wisdom of the Heart Sutra, says that uh, really the basic problem, as the Buddha saw it, as the Buddha saw it, the basic problem of our life is that we have divided the world into me and not me. And so there's, uh, so at, since we have divided the world this way, since we've already divided the world in this way, it stands to reason that that division will bring about some mental afflictions, uh, which are called kleshas in Sanskrit. Wait, I think I'm having a klesha attack. Sometimes I do that while I'm watching the news, listening to the news, reading the news. I have a klesha attack. And it's because something has disturbed or upset me. And so in this talk, I'm going to talk a little bit about the other, who we perceive of as being the other, kind of what the situation looks like to us, and then uh, the Buddha's point of view on how the situation really might be and really might be viewed. So um, before I get started, I want to make sure that I touch on something that's important to you today. So I'd like to see if I could grab three opinions here of things that uh, anybody in the uh, group here might want to talk about today or might want to hear today. If something's been challenging you in the last week or two, not sure what it could be, but you know, but if, if there's something you would make sure that you would like for me to make sure I include today, you can just put up your hand and I'll call on you. We need, we need about three. There's one. Yeah. The person, uh, I'm going to repeat this so that it get, goes on the recording. This is the only problem with audience participation. We don't have the Mr. Microphone going around here. So um, I'll, I'll repeat it for the recording. Um, you're looking for the appropriate response in the face of hateful things. Now, are you interested in knowing about if you observe injustice or if you injure, uh, in observe hateful things or if they happen to you or both? Both. Both. Right. Oh, sure. Right. Okay. Sure. I understand. That's that's a good question. I, I've got room for two more. Oh, we've got two more. We'll start in the back and then the front. Okay. A lot of conservatives are um, upset that they are getting lumped into the uh, mm -hmm. white supremacist right. mentality. Yeah. Well, I'm concerned about being lumped into the uh, voracious anti-Trump. Yeah, I understand. No, and and I think so. If I could state, if I could restate your your thought for the recording, um, it's um, how to respond. This is also sort of a how to respond. How to respond when somebody tries to lump you in with a group that is 
unsavory or I'm not saying the right thing. Help me out again. Yeah. But I think people, conservatives, just lump everybody left of center mm-hmm. as in this gigantic, you know, vicious anti-Trump. Mm-hmm. How to feel when you're misidentified. Yeah. And you're lumped in with the, yeah. Okay. It's almost, it's almost like how to, how to deal with being unjustly accused of something. Almost, you know, it, it feels like that a little bit. Am I close? All right. Because I know really the first thing to do is my own how how I respond to stuff. Right. Right. But then the second thing is sort of how I'm being perceived. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I understand now. I I have a good point because being misperceived is 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 painful. Being mistook or misperceived or misunderstood. I, I get what you're saying there, and we can talk about that. And then you, your thought? Um, Could you talk about uh, uh, maybe the inherent kind of contradiction of spiritual practice and trying to relieve, being relieved from self-claiming, but then that's also kind of a self. You know, if you want to do a practice to be more compassionate for something, there's there's also an inherent selflessness. Sure. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. Doing a practice to realize Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, I think, so the questioner, let me see if I've got it right. If I can repeat it back to you, that means I'm getting close. Um, how to, I think the way you stated it at the very end was the, was the way I understood the best. How to sidestep the, the inherent difficulty in spiritual practice in that you are doing it for yourself. And how do you cultivate true compassion when really spiritual practice is about you? Is that close? I mean, you know, okay. I mean, it's not exactly what you said, but I, this is this is uh, this is a little side joke. This is how I made my living for 15 years: was trying to, you know, kind of reconstitute what people's meaning was from. A, and that's I was a newspaper reporter for 15 years, and it was not easy work sometimes because we had to try to understand what people are saying and what they meant at the same time. And that's not easy, but I get what you're saying, and I almost feel like um, that's a good place to start. Because um, uh, there'll be a question period at the conclusion for any questions that we couldn't cover uh, right now. Uh, but um, uh, but for for the presentation portion, I think we need to start with that idea of the me and the not me, and then the problem that that arises that that brings up for us. Remember what I was saying is that from the Buddhist point of view. From the Buddhist point of view, we have a, a self-concept. It's called I or me. Uh, sometimes we call it self. Sometimes we call it ego. Uh, and this is a natural um, outgrowth 
this ego or self concept is a natural outgrowth of our experience because we as beings experience ourselves. We experience our minds. We experience our thoughts. We experience the temperature in the room and the tastes of food. And we, we experience so many things. And so, because we have such powerful experiences, including our thoughts, which can be very powerful, we posit or theorize or believe that there is someone experiencing those things. We believe that there's someone who's experiencing those things. We create the idea of I or me. And then we start to fill in the blanks, kind of like an artist would begin a sketch with just the outlines of something, but then fill in the details. And so we start with this idea, I or me, and then we fill in all the details based on our experience. I like this, I dislike that. I want this, I don't want that. I like this, I don't like that. And so we begin to fill in who we think we are. If anybody remembers um, that, that great piece of, uh, of cinema, Amelie, everybody wonders about how she introduces herself and all of the characters. She introduces herself and all of the characters in the film by what they like and what they don't like, which is really interesting. Because in a way, we think it's strange for this character to begin the to begin the movie by explaining who she is in terms of what she likes and doesn't like and what all the other characters like and don't like but interestingly enough that's how we see one another as the person who likes this or the person who doesn't like that and oh i better be careful when i talk to so and so because they like this or they don't like that you know or they think i'm a this or they think i'm a that and so just as we have likes and dislikes, other people have likes and dislikes. Just as we believe that we're the main character of our little drama called My Life, you know, ta-da, my, you know, as we're the, the hero of that story, they are also the heroes of their story. And we're just minor characters in their, uh, in, in their life. And so we, create this uh, ego or self-concept. And uh, I often use the example of children playing with cardboard boxes. Sometimes children will put cardboard boxes over their heads and punch out two little eye holes and then go running around, pretending to be this or pretending to be that. But interestingly enough, that's kind of what we're doing all the time anyway. We have this idea of who we think we are, our ego, and then we fixate on it. And we say, my ego, do or die. My ego is better than your ego, and so forth and so on. And we have this little box that we run around in, which is our self-fixation. And it kind of blinds us a little bit because it's hard to see through those two little eye holes. And we don't see things quite clearly enough because we have all these ideas about this person and that person and what they're doing. And so we run around in our little boxes. And then we bump up against other people in their little boxes and then we start to have arguments, and then, anyway, you can kind of see where it goes. And in a way, the Buddha said that all of this comes about because of confusion and delusion. He said it all comes about because of confusion and delusion. Well, wait a minute, I'm inside my little box. How could I possibly be confused? Well, the idea of self that we have created is an idea, and we have created it. And it is in that way sort of 
fictitious, sort of imaginary, uh, because people can actually change. I don't know if you've experienced this, but I have experienced it in my life. I used to like this, and now I like that. I used to eat this, and now I eat that. And I used to do this, and now I do that. And so I'm already changing. I've already changed. It's not that the little girl who liked to eat ice cream all day has changed. Uh, she didn't go anywhere. She's still sort of here, but she's not doing that anymore. She's doing something else. And so the, what the Buddha taught was that since our self-concept is self-created, it can be self-adjusted. It can be adjusted and changed. And so what this means is that any person can change. Maybe not the way we would like for them to change, but they can change, and they have this capability of changing. And so in a way, when we look at other people, we only see what we see as their defects. Like, oh, they don't do that, which I like, or they do do that, which I don't like, whatever. And we continuously look at them as other than us different than us. But what happens when we say, I am different from those people, is that we're secretly saying, I am better than those people. I am superior to those people. Their ideas are not as good as my ideas. Their beliefs are not as good as my beliefs. They're not like me. And that's also fictitious. <laughs> because they are like us. They just like different things, and they do different things. The, the Buddha said we are all alike in several ways. One of the ways is that we are all alike is that we all want to be happy. It's not as though 80% want happiness and 20% don't care. 100% of all beings want to be happy. They want to be happy. And everything they do is about getting happiness. I had this really weird revelation getting on an airplane once. I don't know if these kinds of things happen to you, but... I had this really weird revelation getting on an airplane once, and I saw all of the people sort of jostling to get the seat they wanted and to put their bag where they wanted to put it and to uh, have the little drink that they wanted to have in their little peanuts or whatever. And every And it suddenly occurred to me that everybody was trying to be happy. Everybody was trying to be comfortable and not be afraid of flying and not be afraid of their situation. And they were trying their best to not be afraid, and they were trying their best to get the thing they wanted, to be happy. And it was really weird to suddenly see a label under the person jostling somebody else, and the label that I put on my head is, wants to be happy. And the person talking on their cell phone really loudly, wants to be happy. The person making a face at somebody else wants to be happy. And uh, the person uh, uh, drinking the drink or uh, eating the popcorn or whatever wants to be happy. And I, it's almost as though I saw their invisible labels just for a few moments. And it really made me happy to realize that that's all, of the, that's all that all of the people in front of me were doing. They wanted to be happy. And I felt like that was a revelation from above. Ah, no angel singing, but you get, but it was like that one little moment 
that the world kind of opened up and showed me how things really are. And that's what the Buddha said. He said, we have to look deeply beneath the surface of things and see how things really are. Don't just accept what we see on the surface. Look beneath that and see what's there. And, uh, and I think that if we can stop for just a moment, when we see things we don't like, when we see people acting in ways that we don't approve of, if we could even just scribble in comic sans, you know, right under their, uh, their, their name or their identification wants to be happy or their fear is coming because they want to be happy. Their anger is coming because they want to be happy. And the idea is that they don't know how. And because they don't know how to be happy, they're trying everything, including things that are harmful. And so what we have, what we have then is a, hopefully a moment of understanding. Hopefully a moment of understanding. And the Buddha said we're all alike in that we all want to be happy and we're all alike in that we are all unenlightened and don't know how to get happiness. And so we use whatever our habits tell us will make us happy. The cup of tea, paired nicely with the cookie. They're better when dunked. Oh, you're not a dunker? Okay, well, we'll do that. So, I mean, you know, the idea is that if we recognize that, that's a good start, that others are trying to be happy. But the other thing the Buddha said is that we all have Buddha nature. We all have the potential to wake up from the delusion and illusion of self-fixation. You see, having a self-concept is not the problem. Clinging to it is the problem. Carrying it like a flag, my my ego do or die, you know. This is what the problem is. And so being able to loosen the grip on that is the beginning of losing the delusion. And as we lose the delusion, we become happier because we have less things that make us upset. And we have more things that cause us compassion. Um, I read... Um, I recently read an article about Tolstoy, as you do, you know. <laughs> and uh, one of the one of the yeah one of the Tolstoy scholars was talking about the use of the word pity, pity, in Tolstoy. That some people think of pity as not being very good, and that compassion is the better word. But Tolstoy was arguing for pity. And the scholar was arguing for it, saying that, that there is something there of empathy where we feel what the other person is experiencing. So whether we call it compassion or pity or whatever, the idea is that when we begin to feel and understand the other person, that's the beginning of a connection with them that goes beyond the surface, beyond the boxes that we put ourselves in when we begin to look beneath the surface and see beneath the surface. And so um, the labels that we give ourselves, conservative or liberal or this or that, I think are all attempts to divide. When we really should just look at each other and say, you're hurting, can I help you? 
And I think that this is really an interesting movement that has happened in the past and will happen in the future because all human beings have this potential to wake up, this Buddha nature. And when we see and speak to that within a person and make the connection with that higher self, if you want to call it that, the Buddha nature, if we make connection with that and see how it's covered over, it would be like seeing a, a small child, a toddler, fighting over a toy. We look at that toddler fighting over a toy and we go, oh, you just don't get it. It's just a toy. It's just a toy. And so if we have that moment of connection, then we can begin to change our own negative mental afflictions of dislike and distrust and, um, and difficulty. So I think that um, these are the things I want to summarize for you, and then we can have some discussion, is that the other that we see and believe is out there and different from us is actually the same as us, in that they want to be happy and they have Buddha nature and they don't know it. And because they don't know it, they're throwing everything away in the service of their own mental afflictions. And that's to be pitied, or that's to be empathized with, that's to be sympathized with, that's to, be, that's to ignite our compassion. It's almost like you see somebody who has something valuable and then throws it away. And so if we can start feeling like that, then our own hatred will be less. And if our own hatred is less, then we will be able to think more clearly and see more clearly what to do in any situation. And I think that this brings us to the two uh, early matters here, the matter of um, the appropriate response to someone doing hateful things and um, the response to being misperceived. By others. And I think that um, if we look at the example of the great people of the past, uh, Gandhi was one, Martin Luther King was the other, uh, they said that the way to respond, the appropriate response to hateful things, is nonviolence. It's hard to be nonviolent. And you have to put your hand up to defend yourself sometimes, or run away. But it is better to respond nonviolently to things. You can see what it's like when large groups of people get together for a cause, and they are hateful and yelling and angry. And you see what happens when people get together for a cause and they sit quietly and let their presence speak. We have to keep relearning this every generation, it would seem, because uh, so many folks misunderstand and think that Mike makes right, and it's hard. It's hard. And so, um, to me, if we look at these examples of the past, the way to respond uh, to hate hateful things that you see is 
to do your best to correct the injustices that you see in your own personal life as well as the larger injustices that you have time to work on as a group. But the main thing one should not do is form hatred toward others because this is a poisonous attitude that slowly corrodes our own humanity. We lose our humanity when we allow hatred to take us over. And we can almost see the hateful person as a person who's drinking poison. We could almost see them like that because the hateful rhetoric and the hateful thinking destroys a person from the inside. It, corru it corrupts and corrodes them from the inside, and they completely lose sight of their Buddha nature. They don't even, if somebody told them they have it, they would deny it and not believe it. And this, this is to be pitied or empathized with or sympathized with or compassionate toward. Because um, as one lama once said, hey, the worst a human being can do to you in this life is kill you, but your own hatred can throw you into lower realms for eons. And that's much worse. So uh, this is why it is not easy to have a Buddhist response, because it seems so much easier to be hateful in response to hate. But the, the Buddha told his followers not to return blows for blows, not to return words for words. He said, don't do it. And in fact, a whole uh, verse of a prayer was written by one, a Tibetan master, and, and uh, we studied it with Kemba Ergen Tenzin last year. And he said, uh, give all victory to others and accept defeat for yourself. And what that meant was, don't return blows for blows. Don't return words for words. And let them have the victory. Because if you allow that to happen and you, have, and you give them no uh, response, then they may feel as though they have won something, but you'll know who really won, and you'll know who is really in charge of their mind, and who's really not poisoning their mind. And so I think that, um, that it is not easy to not respond to the hate you see. I think the main thing I would do would be, and I've been telling people this for two weeks, is to let the Buddhas and Bodhisattvas help you out. Um, somebody wrote to me this morning, uh, on Facebook and said, uh, are Buddhas and Bodhisattvas real or are they just ideas? And the answer is, they're real. Uh, because the, the Buddha taught that no one created our minds and therefore the minds can't be destroyed, not even at death. Not even death can destroy your mind. And so that means that all of the beings who ever became enlightened in the past, all of them, are still around. What form they're in, I couldn't tell you. But uh, like everybody, they all made the aspiration that they would be present in this world in whatever way beings need to relieve their suffering. And so this is why the Bodhisattva is unselfish, because the Bodhisattva is trying to gain enlightenment for the benefit of others. And because they're trying to gain enlightenment for the benefit of others, then, as it says, as um, John Guncontrol says in his book, once they become enlightened, there is nothing for them to do but 
to ceaselessly and vastly work for the benefit of others and try to relieve the suffering of every being that they encounter. So as Kemper Rinpoche once said, once you've taken the Bodhisattva vow, you're never going to be bored ever again. <laughs> because beings are endless and we vow to benefit them. Beings are endless. And so we vow to go and benefit them. And if we start now, it's a good time to start. So the, there is an inherent contradiction in, uh, in doing Dharma practice because we all start with what's called the Hinayana motivation. Hinayana means lesser vehicle or smaller vehicle. It means that we have only the wish to benefit ourselves. And then after we've practiced this meditation practice for a while, we become aware of our own suffering. And becoming aware of our own suffering, we become slightly aware of the suffering of others and begin to feel empathy or compassion for the suffering of others. And that gives birth to the Mahayana, which is the wish to benefit all sentient beings, the wish to relieve the pain and suffering of all beings. And if we use the training methods that are taught to us in the Bodhicitta scriptures as well as the Bodhicitta commentaries, we will actually be transformed by love because the Buddha said you cannot achieve Buddhahood without training in bodhicitta. Therefore, we have to take hold of this Mahayana path of trying to benefit others. And when we do these two practices, when we do the Hinayana, we get some escape velocity from our selfishness. And then through the Mahayana, we slowly take it away entirely, piece by piece, thought by thought, bit by bit, until it's no longer there. One uh, person uh, said to me, well, the ideal Buddhist, in my opinion, because a Buddhism is about non-attachment, this young fellow in an audience said, he put his hand up and asked Kemper Rinpoche, well, isn't Buddhism sort of a scam? Because, you know, the Buddha said, you, you know, all you need to do is realize your Buddha nature and then you're enlightened. So, like, what's the big deal? Why don't we just all instantly do it? And you shouldn't really need dharma, because if you're attached to dharma, that's an attachment. So you need to just throw away your attachment to dharma. Don't do any dharma practice, and everything will be fine. Because after all, if you are attached to your dharma practice, you're attached to something. Now, isn't that right? <laughs> and and Kemper Pache just looked at him and said, well, you know, he said, it reminds me of a story of a man who got in a boat to cross a lake, and he got halfway across the lake, and he said, you know, I shouldn't really need this boat. I think I could just walk to the other side. So he gets out of the boat and starts walking on the water and sinks like a stone. And he never makes it to the other side. And he said, so Dharma is something we need until we don't need it anymore. So you need to be attached to Dharma until you don't need it anymore. And what's really interesting is that if you look at the Mahayana, what it does is it changes how we are attached to things. Instead of being attached to things for our own benefit, we're being attached to things to benefit others. It's a small difference. But if we practice both types of bodhicitta, eventually that dissolves too, because there's two types. There's love and compassion, and then there's wisdom and emptiness. That's ultimate bodhicitta. Wisdom and compassion is the relative bodhicitta. I mean, I'm sorry, uh, love and compassion is relative bodhicitta, and wisdom and emptiness is the ultimate path. And so when you, in the Mahayana, you practice them both. And eventually, as Jungle Control says, you achieve awakening, and then, because you have been trained in benefiting others, that's all you will do for the rest of eternity, is benefit beings. Every being you encounter will be changed by 
their connection with you. So that's the best I can do on your contradiction. Now, a scholar could probably do a whole lot more. And so when uh, Kempo Ergen Tenzin comes back, we'll ask him this question as well. And that way you'll get uh, what I would think would be um, uh, a real definitive answer. This is just a, like a placeholder until a good answer comes along. Because, um, uh, because if we were to, if we were to just abandon Dharma, saying, well, I don't need the attachment to Dharma, then we wouldn't really get the benefits of doing practice. So we have to, we have to be able, we have to use these practices to go beyond these practices. The way Kemperbache put it is, he says, we start with bad habits, then we exchange the bad habits for good habits. And then, we practice uh, wisdom and emptiness and go beyond habit altogether. And so that's, um, that's a little bit on that topic. We can talk more during the discussion period. But I feel as though the problem we have is that we believe in the reality of absolutely everything and the solidity of absolutely everything. And because of this, we suffer. And so we have to find a way to begin to let go. And love is one of the ways we can do that is by loving everyone and everything. Uh, what I've been telling people to do this week, because it's been difficult for many people, is that if they have a particular political figure, you can just pick one. There are many. If you have a particular political figure you're having trouble with, uh, you can imagine that they are in front of you, and you can recite the mantra of Chenrezig, the Bodhisattva of Compassion, and imagine that Chenrezig is washing and bathing that person with white light, and that it washes away all the negative karma that they are accumulating, and that it brings their mind to a place of openness and changes their mind. Now, will this work? Don't know, but it will definitely affect the person who's doing the practice. That part of the other that we claim to detest is actually inside us as well. This is the sort of secret part of this talk. And that is that what we dislike in others is actually present, even if it's in a very small way. Even if it's just in a tiny, thin, vestigial, molecular way, we have a little of that in ourselves, or we wouldn't be able to recognize it in the other. Whatever their fault is, we have that fault, even in small. And if the situation in our life was the same as it was in their life, we might turn out like them. My friends in 12-step have a great statement. They say, there but for the grace of God go I. Meaning, if my life had been different, that could have been me. If my life had been different, that could have been me. I remember sitting, I remember sitting with my therapist. Uh, yeah, llamas have therapists. Uh, it's, it's a good thing, too, believe me. So I was talking to my therapist about this one time. And, and she said to me, I had a particularly different, difficult person in my life. Um, we'll, just, we'll just say um, step-parent. Anyway, so I had a difficult person in my life, and I didn't know how to handle her at first. And so I had a lot of struggle with this person. And I eventually started bathing her with Chenrezig. It helped a lot. Helped a lot. And using all of the techniques in the Mahayana mind training. Because Mahayana mind training is not just wishful thinking. You actually have, there are meditations that you have to do 
where you work with your experience of others and slowly begin to see that they're the same as you and slowly through the practice begin to wish that you could take on and remove their sufferings and then through the practice of this meditation you actually imagine that you do take on their sufferings and give them happiness in return it's called tong lin or sending and receiving meditation it's extremely powerful um, yeah, I, this is not the time, but help me remember, and I'll tell you the story of the woman who wanted to kill someone until she started doing Tonglen. She changed her life completely. I just saw her a few weeks ago, and she's still okay. She got into treatment, and everything's fine. She didn't kill anyone, but she said, please tell my story. So it's she's an amazing story. But Tonglen changes people. It changes minds. It changes everything. Well, so... I can't quite get my therapist to understand what Tonglen is or how it works. Uh, but that's okay. She comes from a different background. I, I understand. So she asked me one time, she says, well, you know, you've had this difficult relationship with this person. And uh, she said, what do you think you're supposed to learn from this? And I said, well, you know, to start, to start with, I'm a Buddhist, so there's no supposed to, you know. <laughs> We didn't, we didn't like have a, a meeting before birth and say, hey, this is what I need to learn in this lifetime, therefore I'm going to put myself in situations where, I, no, we, that, that's not what the Buddha taught. So, so there's no supposed to. But what I can tell you is that I have come to understand that in an instant, I could be her. In an instant. If I had the life circumstance that she had, if I had the injuries and the abuse and everything that she had in her life, I could be her just like that. Therapist didn't quite understand my, under my explanation. But that was how I felt. I could have been her. And just if I could have been her. In fact, I might have been her. In fact, I may still be her. Yeah, sorry. But... But the fact of the matter is, once we realize that the other is not that different and begin to have compassion for their faults and bless them with whatever you've got. I know, we're not enlightened yet, so we may not think we have much to give, but we can imagine that we are Chenrezy doing Tonglen for these people, and Chenrezy can do it, even if we can't. So... It seems to me that the appropriate response, whether it's uh, observing injustice or being misidentified uh, and misperceived uh, or whatever, is it's got to be love. Compassion and love for ourselves, compassion and love for the other who is really not that different from us. And when we recognize and have compassion for that other, we are also having compassion for that of the other that is within us. That little piece of ourselves that we reject, maybe even hate, that little piece inside us that we reject, if we can develop compassion for that other, even if it's just theoretical compassion, even if it's just lip service compassion. Okay, my teacher told me I have to do this, so okay, compassion. I don't really believe it, but compassion. You know. But even if we do it half-heartedly, we're still doing it. And it's still having an impact on us. And then slowly it will become the real thing. 
because that's how human beings do everything. We do everything slowly through repetition, over and over and over again. And uh, the, the cool thing is we have Buddha nature. I think I may have said that already. We have Buddha nature. You have it. And even if you don't feel capable of having this kind of love and compassion, your Buddha nature can do it. Your Buddha nature can do it. And it will eventually and gradually lead you into the practices that will allow you to see it in yourself and to see it in others. It starts as aspiration and then becomes something more. So, um, I, but, and I also have to tell you something really cute, and then I just realized now I've, I've gone a little over on my time. I want to have some 10 minutes for discussion here. Um, Kempo Karthi Rinpoche, uh, four times a year gives, uh, talks at KTD that are broadcast to the KTC centers, and we, and we observe them. We go to somebody's house and type in all the codes and watch these things. And one of my, uh, favorite, uh, comments came out in a Q&A because somebody asked, uh, uh, Kempo Karta Rinpoche, 93 years old, born in Tibet, escaped in 1959, the whole thing, came to America in 76. Asked him, well, like, how, how do we, how do we influence powerful negative people? And he said, well, he said, really, if they're really powerful and their, and their habits are, and their beings are kind of coarse and negative, he said, I think the only thing you can do is expose them to images of the Buddha. Make sure they see images of the Buddha or mantras. And that, that will have a subtle impact on their psyche and will create the connection for their future connection with Dharma. And so I said, hmm, hmm. So what this means is that every demonstration that is against some political figure or in favor of some political cause should have at least one person walking around with it with an image of the Buddha on a stick. <laughs> Just and they can say, well what's your message? And I'll say, Buddha is my message. Oh manape me hung. And they'll go like, okay, that person's a little weird. But at least they're here. Um and so I'm thinking that somebody should do it because gradually the negative people do tend to look at things that have to do with them. And so they might just see that image of the Buddha in one of the news reports. Uh, I just think it's possible. And, uh, or, you know, Omane Peme Hong, the mantra, you know. I think it, so anyway, that's just me being weird, but. Um, I, I thank you for your patience and understanding today. I really wanted to say a few things about the other and how we tend to treat the other as being different from us when it's just not the case. I'll never forget. Somebody asked Kempo Karth Rinpoche, said, look, I have a very difficult person in my life and they don't treat me well and they treat me badly and blah, 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 this and that. Um, and I really dislike them greatly, and I'm trying to change the relationship, and blah, blah, blah. Uh, how should I view that person? And Rinpoche was a little on the tough side, saying, you should see that they are no different than you. That's hard. But what that means is that they are confused beings who do wrong, thinking they're doing right. <laughs> and and I, I think that's hard to hear. But it's something worth hearing because the other part of it is, and they have Buddha nature. 
So there's always hope. This is why, this is why uh, people are against the death penalty, because even people who are convicted uh, properly, I'm not talking about people who are innocent who are put on death row. I'm talking about people who were properly uh, investigated, convicted, and so forth, and placed on death row. They are. They can still change. I know. I've met them. And the fact of the matter is, they can change. This is why capital punishment probably is not a good idea, because we shouldn't be doing this. People can change. Even the, the worst offender among us can change. I often speak of a person in my family. There was a person, actually, this is in my husband's family, um, who was just really negative uh, person. And uh, w when they drank, it got worse. But interestingly enough, they had a major stroke late in their life, and they became completely loving, sweet, and gentle. And who knew that something like that could happen and change that person's attitude completely? But they became completely different and were sweet and gentle for the remainder of their life. I almost feel like it was a blessing. And uh, Lama Sultram Yeshi speaks about uh, his, uh, one of his family members this way who got dementia and forgot all the things she was angry about. And then she was happy, loving, and peaceful. So I think what we need to do is forget some of the things we're angry about and uh, try to work constructively for change and try our best to do, deal with our own anger and let go of our own anger. So anyway, discussion. Um, let's see if anybody has further questions. I don't know. I'm sorry I didn't do a good job on your question, but uh, at least I gave it a start. Is I gave it a start. We have to start with some selfishness. We have to. Otherwise, we don't do any dharma. We eventually wear it out through the practice. The practice actually wears it out, begins to disappear. It's very interesting because slowly we see how other people are like us. There are even practices that you can do to cut that out, cut that selfishness out. Yes, hi. Hi, Kathy. Thank you for your teaching. Um, I have a question about um, the three-year retreat. Mm -hmm. I'm interested in that. Um, in your personal experience, what was the most challenging uh, thing or what aspect that you found challenging while you were in, in retreat? And then when you came out, what was the hardest thing to get used to? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Yeah. Um, yeah, I appreciate it. The questioner is asking um, for some observations about three-year retreat. Um, those of you who are familiar with the, uh, the, the teaching program here know that everybody starts with shamatha practice, and we learn how to calm and, and um, to calm the mind and how to begin to work with the mind. Then we add in uh, the, the precepts of not killing, not stealing, and so forth, and try to improve our, our ethical conduct. So some people say they clean up their karma. You know, once, once we calm our mind, we begin to clean up our karma. Then we begin to work on compassion and bodhicitta. And then we uh, slowly uh, begin to practice the, the uh, Mahamudra, which is the, uh, the practice that has brought about Buddhahood for like 900 years worth of teachers and students in this lineage. And the Mahamudra practice takes the form of 100,000, um, it starts with 100,000 recitations of refuge and purification mantras and offerings and all this sort of thing. And then uh, it's followed by a pointing out instruction where a master points out the nature of the student's mind and then they begin to uh, practice based on that. 
And so that's our practice curriculum in kind of in a nutshell. Shamatha, ethical conduct, the practices of bodhicitta and the Mahayana, love and compassion, and then the practices of Mahamudra. Uh, but there are other ways that you can practice these things. And one of the ways that you can practice these things is by leaving home for the period of three years to uh, undertake the Mahamudra practice in uh, a more dedicated environment. And so uh, what we do is that we go to the three retreat center and we stay there for the entire three years. Um, there's no vacation, no visits. Uh, we don't get email, but we can uh, send uh, postal letters. Except during, there's a blackout period that's just started for them. Uh, there'll be a nine month blackout period where they get no communication at all. It's their first, it's their first major deity practice. They're going to be doing Vajrayogini for the next nine months, so pray for them. They won't, they won't be able to speak either. Uh, so it's going to be tough. My guess is they'll probably still write notes. I know we did. But anyway, uh, I mean, you got to communicate somehow. Anyway, um, and so that's really the function of the three-year retreat is to be able to do Mahamudra in a dedicated environment without a lot of distractions. And that's why you leave home for that period of time and that you dedicate uh, yourself to that practice. And that's broken down into smaller pieces too. You do the Mahamudra preliminaries again and then you do um, one of the big, uh, big guru practices like Gempopa, Marpa or Milarepa. You do that for about three months. It takes about six months to get through the Nundro. Then you do um, Gampopa, Marpa, Milarepa for about three months. And then you do Vajrayogini, which is the first deity practice for nine months. Then you do the six yogas of Naropa for about six to eight months. And then you do Chakrasamvara for nine months. And then Red Chen Raisi for nine months. And then you're done. So you're pretty well cooked after that. And, um, and people ask me, well, what's the hardest part? And you know what? I think the hardest part was was being enclosed with like the same people for three years and like you get on each other's nerves. I would say that would probably be, was the hardest part because um, because you know there was there um, there were a couple people who got on my nerves and I think there was one person I got on her nerves. You know, so I think it's kind of like that. That was the hardest part. Uh, I I have to tell you the true confession and I and I am ashamed to say this. I was not homesick. I loved being in retreat and I didn't want to leave when it was over because you, because when you practice shamatha in that kind of environment, it's, it's really wonderful. You really get a, you get a, a, an idea of what meditation can be. And then getting the pointing out instructions and learning Mahamudra and it's all just so wonderful. I didn't get enlightened. That would have been the best part. That didn't happen. But, but I learned how to practice for the rest of my life. I, I literally would not need any more instruction except some Mahamudra refreshers. I get, I need to get those. Oh, sorry. I forgot to turn my cell phone off. See, everybody else is supposed to turn their cell phone off, but not me. Okay. So, um, so that, I think that was the hardest part was the interpersonal, uh, relationships that were hard for me to navigate. And then the, the best part was being able to meditate like that. That was just awesome. And uh, was it difficult to come home? And the answer is, yeah, because believe it or not, you know, I was married when I went into retreat. I had been married for 20 years when I went into retreat. So my husband was like, go anyway, go. <laughs> and, um, you know, I didn't, we didn't have children, so that made it different. If we had had children, it would been a whole different thing, dynamic. But as it was just the two of us, he was like, go already. Just come back. 
And uh, so then uh, uh, when I came back, believe it or not, all of the problems that I had before I went on retreat were there. They were still there. Surprise! And, uh, and because, uh, because I hadn't worked on them directly while I was in retreat and I didn't get enlightened, I came out and the problems were still there. And uh, so I had to, that's why I got a therapist. And, uh, and that helped a great deal right there. And so that has helped a lot. And so that was the hardest part, um, was coming back to all my problems, not being fixed yet, but feeling better about being able to fix them. Does that make sense? And the other thing was, um, the other thing that was hard was the speed. Don't forget the internet happened while I was on retreat. I had no idea. And when I came, when I, my husband's driving me home, he said, oh, you should see this thing that's been invented. It's called the Internet. You'll love it. And I'm like, mm. And so that was, and then people were talking fast and moving fast, and I couldn't be with people at all. I couldn't be with more than one person at a time for several weeks. But I was very lucky. This is a joke. I was very lucky. I got bronchitis, like, instantly, because I'd been not exposed to any germs for three years. And so I was in bed for, like, six weeks. So that changed everything. It gave me a chance to sleep a lot, because I did. You do. Because you only get, like, you, you go to bed at, like, 10, and you get up at, like, 3. So you're busy. Anyway, so I had some sleep to catch up on. Other things that people might want to ask about. Well, maybe we'll stop here. There's one other thing uh, that was cool, and that was about retreat, and that is that I, I finally understood the four thoughts that turn the mind toward Dharma, that we have a precious human birth. We have... It's impermanent. Karma is real, and the samsara has many, many defects. And so that's what I think I really got out of the three-year retreat, if I would say anything. It was just that concentrated period of practice and coming coming home with knowing that was true. Okay. Well, if you have questions that uh, you wanted to ask or whatever, uh, you can let me know, uh, uh, and then uh, we'll try to address them next time. And uh, let's sit quietly and mentally dedicate the goodness of this session. We dedicate the goodness of this session to all suffering beings. May beings meet with those who believe in nonviolence, and may beings learn the path of nonviolence. May beings be free from suffering, its causes. May they come to Buddhahood. And coming to Buddhahood, may they emanate in all directions and benefit sentient beings endlessly. We dedicate the goodness with this thought in mind. Okay. Thank you, thank you, thank you.